again to Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians and chapter 2. And as we do so, I'll commence by just saying how honored I feel to be among you, having fellowship with you uh, over this week, and uh, also to have the opportunity to be among those that are bringing God's word to you. I um, can also take this opportunity to bring greetings to you from my own church back home, uh, Kabwata Baptist Church, as has already been um, rightly said. Uh, the brethren there are happy to send me over, not just to this part of the world, but um, wherever it is I often go to share God's word, they see it as part of their mission's work to support God's work. If they can't do it financially, at least they can do it by sending someone to work there. And consequently, although at this time I wouldn't promise you that any of them is on his knees praying because it's past midnight back home, uh, but certainly over this period they are upholding us in prayer as well. If you have noticed on your program, I've been asked to speak on the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of the Savior, his exalting, and also the subject of imitating him from the chapter that has just been read to us, and specifically the first few verses up to about verse 11. As I wrestled with preparing my messages, um, I have to make a slight adjustment, and I hope by the end of this evening's message you will appreciate the reason why. As I thought about the subjects that were on my hands, I realized that in many ways it was going to necessitate my beginning the messages from verse 6, which tells us about the state of our Savior before he came on earth, and then proceeds to tell us in verse 7 about the actual depth to which he went in order to bring salvation to us. However, I felt it important that we commence with the very first verse in this chapter because it enables us to appreciate not just the context in which the Apostle broke off to give to us something of the content of the doctrine of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think much more than that, it helps us to appreciate the importance of this grand display of these doctrinal truths. The Apostle Paul is not dealing with the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ in this portion of Scripture in order to simply explain to us something of the foundation of our salvation. It is because he is concerned about a subject that all of us as Christians ought to be concerned about. And it is the subject of the unity of believers in the Christian church. He has just been saying towards the end of chapter 1, and I commenced with him from verse 27, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know, now listen to this, that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and you will be saved and that by God. In the mind of the Apostle Paul, at the moment in prison, not knowing what will really happen to him in a few days or perhaps a few months to come, he had one basic concern for this church in Philippi. And it was the fact that they would experience something of a unity that would enable them to live out the implications of discipleship in an effective way. That they would have a testimony in the eyes of the community round about them that would truly persuade them that this group calling themselves Christians are not merely a product of a sociological movement in history. They are a product of the hand of God. Because as they are looking at community around and seeing how it is deeply fragmented along every cleavage that you can think about, they would nonetheless look at this body which comprises such a variety of people and yet so united, standing firm as one man, to borrow the words that the Apostle Paul uses here. And that would convince them that whatever message these people are preaching must be true. It is this same God they are proclaiming who has ended up bringing them together. We need to listen to them lest we perish. And it is out of this deep concern, therefore, that the Apostle begins chapter 2. It is the fact that he would like to see a united church in Philippi. Now, whether this church was already being threatened by possibilities of division, or whether the Apostle Paul was just anticipating this possibility and therefore wanting to inoculate the brethren, lest it happen. One thing is sure, is that this is a problem which we ourselves today need to desperately come to terms with. It is a problem which is either threatening our churches or has already wrecked havoc in them. And therefore, as we come to study the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of who he was, what he became for us, and how God raised him to the highest station in the universe, it is important that we begin by recognizing the relevance of these truths to what happens in our churches and how that is meant to help us 
nor to portray to the divisions that have become so common round about us. If you have been a Christian long enough and you have tried to handle problems that threaten the peace of any church, it will by now have become quite clear to you that most problems that threaten to split churches or even split churches are usually at a personality level. You discover that the first time you are told about what the problem is in that specific church, and maybe you are even called upon to go and help the situation, you have the solutions, at least you think, at your fingertips. You move into the situation, and the moment you begin to interview the various individuals involved in this situation, you soon discover that it is not objective anymore. It is linked up with certain people. And not only that, it is even further than that, it is not at the level of their understanding of the situation, it is at the level of their attitude towards the issues at hand. And because of that, you find that what you thought was a little anthill is Mount Everest. People are brewing storms, as we say, in a teacup. And though objectively speaking, the solution is clear, the result on the floor is that everything you try to do comes to nothing. And the situation finally goes to its terrible conclusion, a split. Now how do we cure such a situation? Because this is not simply something that we need to do because we love one another and would like to continue together. It has a bearing on the very testimony of the church in the world. It affects the very reason why Jesus Christ has planted his churches in the world. To be a light set upon a hill so that people may see and come to this Jesus we are proclaiming. The Apostle Paul, in answering that question, is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ at an individual level. He is writing to the Philippians and basically saying to them that if you, remember at an individual level, if you are not going to be part of the process that brings about the unnecessary fragmentation of the church, you will have to ensure that you possess the kind of mind, the kind of attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ possesses. In other words, 
It's at the point of your sanctification. The point of you ensuring that that which God seeks to do in your life as He leads you from this world into the next, which is fashioning you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you do so deliberately, intelligently, seeking to make sure that you are applying it at a horizontal level in your interpersonal relationship in the church. Let's therefore look at that for a moment. Because that's the essence of what he is saying in the first five verses. First of all, the subject of Christian unity then must commence at an experiential level. You, as a person, surely must have some motivation for wanting to have a relationship with that person sitting across the pews and that person who is leading in song and the person who stands up there to preach and so on. You must have something to motivate you. And that, at a conscious level, is found in your experience of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit. Paul puts it this way in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now obviously the Apostle Paul is not saying by that that doctrine does not matter. But what he is saying is that the teaching that we receive is like the roots of the tree. It is the, the depth from which we are enabled to receive the life. But one thing is sure, that it must be in the outworking of the, what God is doing in our lives that we soon find that we want to relate to the brethren. I hope to make that point clear in a few moments. And so, yes, the gospel is crucial. If you have not come to that point where you have seen yourself as a sinner in the eyes of God, as God himself teaches us in his words, and you have not yet come to the point where you see in Jesus a sufficient Savior for your sins, and you have not come to him in repentance and faith, it is true you will not be interested in Christianity. You are a total stranger to the things of God. But as you and I will also be able to testify, that oftentimes there are people who know these things in the head, but they have never experienced anything 
of the sweetness of the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never experienced anything of the ministry of God's own spirit in them. They are total strangers to these things. And consequently, because of that, they know absolutely nothing of that bond that we have in Christ that goes beyond mere words, mere creeds, mere denominational boundaries. They know absolutely nothing concerning those things. And therefore the Apostle Paul begins from there, saying, look, think for a moment. Look at God's grace towards you. Haven't you known anything of the comfort of being united with Christ? Isn't it your bread and butter? Isn't it the manna that has already come down from heaven that you feast upon? The comfort of His love. Isn't that already something of your heaven being experienced here on earth? Fellowship with His Spirit. Tenderness and compassion at an individual level. Allow me to put it this way. If what I'm speaking about is something you don't know, then it's true you will not care anything about that brother and that sister who disappears from your church. You won't. All you will be concerned about is that you still continue as a church. You will not be concerned about even the individuals, if I could use this picture, who are in your working situation, who may not come to your church, but who themselves show all evidences of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will care nothing about them. You will not be interested in them at all. But when you have experienced this, it goes beyond denominational boundaries. You find that you are interested in those who know and love your Savior and who can testify of His work in their lives. But Paul is going further than that. He's basically referring to that as a kind of foundation, something to motivate you. What he is in essence saying is that if you have experiences, it must flow into corporate experience. You should rise above your individual experience of salvation. You must come out of your closet experiences. You must be concerned about an act 
actual unity with the brethren that is conspicuous in the eyes of the world. That can be seen. That can be testified to. He says, look, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. You are to deliberately seek an expression of your experience in your unity as brethren. Now why? It is because Christianity doesn't just experientially unite you to God so that the life of God flows into your soul in that same act, Christianity unites you to the brethren as well. Spiritually, you get plugged into one another. You become one spiritual house being built upward by God Himself. You can't divorce the two. Let us see this from Ephesians chapter 2. The book just prior to the book of Galatians. Ephesians chapter 2. In many ways, verse 1 to verse 10 deals with the whole issue of the rectifying of my relationship with God. We're dead in trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world, following the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And by nature, we were objects of wrath. But what does God do? Out of mercy, He gives us new life in Christ, raises us from the depth of death, and brings us in Christ into the very heavenly so that now we have a real and vital living relationship with God. We are united with God in Christ. But the letter downward seems to immediately show that that's not the end of the story. What has happened in that relationship has also at the same time broken all these artificial barriers that break up humanity into all kinds of groupings and has made you one. Listen to this. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now Paul is speaking with tongue in cheek. He's basically saying that look, here are people who took down on you. Oh, these, that, and these, the other. We are this, and we are the other. And they are putting walls between the two. 
Verse 12. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. Foreigners the covenants of promise. Without hope and without God in the world. He's saying, look, there's something to be said for this wall of partition. You were outside that. It is true with respect to the spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God as it was expressed on earth before the coming of Christ. But now Christ has come. Now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You were far. You've now been drawn nigh. How? He tells us in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, and on and on he goes. The point he's saying there is that, look, I'm not saying to you Gentiles that come and join the Jews in what they are doing. Neither am I saying to the Jews, abandon them and come and join the Gentiles. What I'm saying is to both Jew and Gentile come into this new body. I have broken the body. And there is this body now, the body of Christ. Jew and Gentile alike must come in on the same term. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they come in, what do we find there? We are told in verse 17, He came and peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now listen to me. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his it's important that we grasp that. That brethren, we are not together in Christ's visible church just because we happen to love the name that is tucked upon the billboard in front of our church. No, because we are within the same context, perhaps of um, the status quo in our society. But it is because we have experienced the salvation of God in Christ Jesus. And having experienced that, it totally overrides all these artificial barriers that are there within our society. Whether it is that of rest, whether it's to do with the levels in terms of our income in society, all that becomes 
totally insignificant, we become one family. And Paul is saying that my joy will be complete if that spiritual reality so precipitate that it can be People can see it. They come into your church and they are not seeing the rich heading one direction and the poor heading another, just barely enduring one another as the service continues. No! But they are seeing a people who are like-minded. A people that love one another. A people who've got a common vision wanting to work together to see the kingdom of God established in the hearts of men and women. One mind, one love, one people. That's what he's been saying in the first chapter. Philippians 1 and verse 27. When he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever the pressures might be that are brought to bear upon you, let it be in such a way that when somebody sees what is happening in that church, it will be speaking eloquently about this gospel that you preach. So that whether I see you or not, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now what we need to see from what the Apostle Paul is saying, is that this neither happens automatically nor is maintained automatically at the constitution. Reason is still And consequently there is a desperate need for us to make sure that we consciously work out the spiritual reality that it might be visible. Look at the way he puts it in terms of how we ought to guard this spiritual unity as it's outworked. Give Christ. Verse 3. He says, first of all, negatively, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain deceit. And then proceeds to talk about it positively. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is obviously 
a servant of the Lord who has worked long enough in the Christian church to realize that what he is talking about is not something that is going to come about by mere wishful thinking. The bare fact that you meet together weekly does not in itself imply that you are going to grow in your unity as a church. It won't. You at an individual level will have to learn to handle the flesh, the fallen nature. Before I expound that, just notice the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul has just expounded something of the length and breadth and depth and height of this great salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having dealt with it in such a way that he has risen to the very highest heaven in his proclamation of it towards the end of chapter 3, he suddenly descends to earth and points a finger into our faces. And listen to what it says to the Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Exactly what he's saying in people. But now listen to this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to give the reason why there is one body, one spirit, etc., etc. What is he saying? He's saying something to this system. That if you do not learn to handle your pride, it's a matter of time before that develops a war between you and that brother or sister sitting across there in church. That's at a very practical level. He's saying one of the things we need to learn is to humble ourselves. As I said at the beginning, I've had sufficient experience in handling church problems to realize that oftentimes the reason why objectivity is totally lost is because someone is leaking his bruised ego. And is not willing to bend until that other person comes in dust and ashes and falls at his face. That's not always the case, but most often, 
That's where the problem is. And again, it's not because this person is thinking of himself too highly, but because he feels that these are my rights. This is who I am. And surely I'm not prepared to be handled anything less than what I am. How dare he call me this or treat me like that? And I can assure you, brethren, handling that is easier said than done. When you have been in Christian leadership long enough, you learn that Christians are saved sinners. Emphasizing that last word, sinners. And from time to time, you will have to say in the privacy of your closet, come, Lord Jesus. Put an end to this madness before your name so disfigured in the eyes of the world that there is nothing left to speak about. Now usually for a young Christian just they coming into the Christian church they don't seem to appreciate this. To them everyone is an angel. They even surprised that there could be any problems in the church. And usually it's because at that stage they are so overwhelmed with the grace of God towards me as sinner that they will gladly be a doormat for anybody in the church. But when they have begun to climb the staircase of leadership in the church, oftentimes that's when problems. When people begin to feel after a number of years that I am somebody, they may not put it in as many words, but that begins to develop. Then you find that this ugly thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, seeking to arrest, to arrest, becomes a living reality. And you can be sure that today's church situation proves the point beyond the best. Those lambs in the Christian church can't understand what's going on. Rejoicing in our common Lord. They want to embrace everybody. Hug those in whom they can see something of Christ's likeness. But it is among those of us who have been around a little longer that they discover 
that what are supposed to be small things, what I called anthills or molehills, have been turned into the Mount Everest of this world. And unfortunately, if they do not side with us as well, then we also must push them further away. And Paul is saying to you, there is a desperate need in the Christian church for humility. Humility. For you and I to learn through godly humility that goes beyond mere doctrinal understanding. That seeks deep enough for us to want to be inconvenient to great level for the the well-being of the brethren. For us to be willing to have our names dragged in the mouth, to suffer so much, to sacrifice so much that we hold dear. If the Lamb of Christ will by that have a healthier life, a more promising future, but more than that, that the cause of Christ may have a more glorious day, that we should not be the dark blot upon this grand landscape of the progress of the gospel in the world. Borrow the words of Richard. May the name of which you speak is Christ. Amen. That's what Paul is talking about here. But very quickly then, how does he hope to have Christians to learn you? Is it by simply saying, be humble? I wish it was that simple. By putting up some placards in the church that says, Be humble everywhere. Or by learning a chorus about humility that you recite over and over again. How is this to be done? And the answer is really the task on our hands. Is your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, how we foster spiritual graces in God's people is not simply by pointing them to do's and don'ts, but by pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways is to point them to his example. 
That's one of the meanings of that word being evangelical. We're not just telling people do this, do this, do the other. We are constantly pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always doing so. See what he has done for you. See what he has done as an example for you. And so on. And Christians therefore are supposed to be nourished in their soul by truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ so that they are simply living out the life of gratefulness to Christ and also as followers of his example. Now Paul does this in many ways. And in order for us to appreciate this, I think it's important that our grasp of the office of Christ as prophet must not be limited to the teaching role that he performed when he was on earth. There are many people, and you can't blame them too much, who think that the offices prophet, priest, and king are divided in this way. Christ was prophet as he lived on earth. He went about teaching and preaching. Then he is priest as he went to the cross. He offered himself to God. And he is king as he ascended into heaven. For he reigns on high. He is in charge of the entire outworking of history until the full role of the elect have come in and then he hands over, as the Bible says, the kingdom to the Father. Now there's something to be said for that. But I'm afraid that's being too simplistic. For in every phase of Jesus' life, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And therefore, when we see him on the cross, we're not just seeing him at once, who is offering himself up to God, we are also seeing him teaching us very basic and vital lessons that we must apply to our lives. I'll be coming to that in a moment. And also, he is king, crushing his enemy and releasing the spoils from his domain. So that cross indeed fulfills all the three offices. But my concern as we proceed here is to see the humiliation of Christ with its grand apex on the cross as Christ has teaching us how we must live. And I want to quickly prove to you that each of the New Testament writers seem to see this. For example, the Apostle Paul, which we'll be seeing one such example this week, but think of, of the time he's teaching about marriage. How are we as men to love our wives? He takes us to the cross. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for So we've got a picture. We've got a standard that we are to seek to achieve throughout our lives. We know we'll never finally get there. But the point is, we ought to utilize all the resources at our hands to try and get as close to that picture as possible. What about Peter? Remember him writing his first epistle, and again dealing with this whole issue of submission, and just quickly takes it in, and comes to the place in first Peter. He says there in First Peter chapter two and verse eighteen, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. Verse twenty one. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. He committed no sin, verse 22, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Talk about perfection, talk about being blameless, talk about someone who can really say, now why are you holding this against me in the workplace? Jesus would have been the right example. But what happened? When they heard in South Sakin, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then there is the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Christ as an example. We'll be seeing more of that this week. Here you are, being treated so badly. And yet you know, you are innocent. You are right. What do you do? You start hurling insults at those who are doing that to you. You look to the cross. You see what happened with Jesus as he was making his way there and as he hung on that cross and he speaks volumes to you as you apply it to your own life. You learn how to treat these same people who are doing this. One more quick example and that is John. First John chapter 1, sorry chapter 3 and verse 16. First John chapter three and verse sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Here's a true picture of love. Want to know how to love? Here's the picture. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brother. I don't think I can fun. Because it's precisely the same thing. There you are grumbling about someone. 
because he is in such desperate need that you are now totally tired. All you need to do is be pointed to the cross as an example of love and ask yourself, have I gone that far yet? And if the answer is no, well then, pull up your socks and continue the journey of love. And that's what Paul is also doing. He realizes that it's not enough for me to exert apostolic authority and simply say, now you be humble. Press you under my thumb and remain there. Lift your eyes to that hill called Gold. First of all, ask yourself the question. Who is he on yonder tree dies after me? Shame. Who is he? It is the Lord. A wonderful It is the Lord, the King of glory. Let that strike you. That the one who went through all this is the creator of the universe. The one who, if he will, with a word, would have wrapped up the whole of the universe with humanity and dispersed it into nothingness and created in another world a new world altogether. He had the power to do so and not a bead of sweat would have appeared on his forehead. But what did he do? Well, he went to death of ugly, and trouble that you and I will never He who had dwelt in the bosom of the Father, who had known infinite love flowing like a river between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Period. Something of being totally cut off from that. Experiencing the wrath of omnipotence that would have sunk an entire universe into the depths of hell. And you did so. For who? For those who would have read what is here I see I may not be the first one here. I forgot I traveled traveling the same from Africa. Maybe in a, a bullet. It's the coup. And then what is it? He left it to God. He 
didn't fight you. No. He believed God. He committed himself to him who judges justly. And as the scriptures tell us, God exalted him to the highest. And what Paul is saying as we start this thing is, friends, if you and I are going to know true biblical unity that will confound the world as we seek to win the world to Christ, we must begin at an individual level, dealing with ourselves, seeing whether we are not beautiful because of who we think we are. Now, granted, there's enough evidence in the world to show that that in itself doesn't totally solve problems because once you've dealt with yourself, there's no guarantee that others have dealt with themselves. But Paul is saying that where we must Tomorrow, the Lord willing, we commence looking at what this means to the Lord Jesus Christ in detail. But before we do, just one final appeal in today's introductory message. Do you treasure the unity you have with the Lord people? Enough for you to see the importance of this. Do you? Do God's people mean anything to you? Because if that's not the case, I can fully well assure you, you will not be interested in what we are dealing with you. Because this will not just be a doctrinal series to enable you to look at the course and see what's happening there. It's meant to be a solution to the possibility in your individual heart of succumbing to the real life pressure that caused this. Are you interested in the well-being of that brother there and that sister there? I. But even more so, are you jealous about the testimony of the Christian church in this fallen world? upon which its evangelistic wrath to a large extent lies. The brethren ought not to be much as it is. It ought not to be so. Because that's why we are here on earth. We've got a God to glorify. 
and to do so conspicuously in such a way that we confound the world. The world should be able to come into our homes, see the way we live, and it ought to speak volumes about our gospel. They ought to come to our church and see what's going on there, and it ought to, to confound them altogether, cause them to ask, how come? That is a world that is so fragmented by all kinds of barriers and walls and curses. You are in love with You set yourselves right out for one another. What is this? That's it. And you can point them to the cross. You can argue in any public forum that is seeking to find solution to the sociological problem, problems of crime and hatred and one form of abuse after another. You can say to them, come to my church and you will see there. You will see when you see the various kinds of people who are there. And yet, tonight, in the Lord Jesus Christ. My appeal is that we ought to be called. We ought to. If not because we are seeing the fragmentation happening in our church or churches, at least to prevent it from happening, we ought to be. And as we commence tomorrow, looking at this example of Christ, may He help us to be searching us 